Welcome to the Pet Grooming Business Podcast, where we give practical business advice to help you grow your pet grooming business. So without further ado, let's get going. It's Bill from uh, Be The Groomer, and I'm talking to Megan, Megan Saint from Your HR Handle today. Welcome, Megan. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, all good, thank you. It's nice and sunny out there, so I've been out in the garden this morning. So um, we're going to talk about uh, HR for your business and how good HR can help your business. And I just wanted to tell everyone how um, we met, how we started working together, which is just coming up to a year now, I think. I think it was around April time, is that right? It was, yeah. It was just after the lockdown, wasn't it? That's it. So, um, so as people may or may not know, my wife and I run a pet grooming business down in Kent. And at the time of meeting you, we had uh, five employees, I believe, and we were just going into furlough. And... You know, we probably struggled, and I think I use the word struggled, with our HR. We never really um, paid it much appropriate attention. We never really gave the business the sort of support that it needed. And possibly we never really gave the employees the support they needed either. And um, it wasn't until we didn't realise that we needed HR help until we started coming up against problems and barriers in our business um, one of which would be um, problems with people smoking. And whenever, you know, we're part of Chamber of Commerce or, um, you know, you get these helplines, they always used to say to us, what does your uh, handbook say? And I'll tear my hair out because my handbook was never written. <laughs> so um, so we uh, were put in touch with Megan, and I think the first services that you did for us was to write that blasted handbook and get all our policies set out and um, set out for our employees. Is that right, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the handbook is literally sort of like the the most useful thing you can have as an employer because it just sets the expectations for the employee. And also it just makes sure that if you do have a question or a problem, that you have a point of reference that you can go back to, something that's already been agreed with your employees. Um, so they can't dispute it. And it just sort of guides you through any problem that you have. Yeah, it was like um, it was like a Bible. And the other thing um, about the handbook was it also helped the employees know where they stand and answer any of their questions before they come to us or then go to you. So having written the handbook, we decided to um, continue with your services and um, started working with you. And my God, thank God we did, because the next uh, sort of <laughs> situation we found ourselves in was that we realised that we were overstaffed and um, we needed to make some changes to our business model and to our staffing. So we went down the redundancy avenue and I'll be honest, I don't think we would ever have done it or considered it without um, finding help from yourself. The help that you gave us was uh, invaluable. You know, you took over everything that you had to do um, with regards to the interviews and the process, and that was fantastic. So I can already say, hand on heart, um, having worked with you for less than a year, we've probably uh, saved ourselves money and saved ourselves time and saved ourselves stress. So uh, that's why I wanted to bring you on today so that um, we can discuss 
with other people that employ people or um, who are looking to employ people, or even maybe if you're an employee. So we can discuss about um, good HR within your business and what it can do for you. We just had uh, a comment from Steph Booth. Um, she's literally just joined and she's talking about her hand, the handbook. Is this handbook um, something that you put together yourself or something you guys have put together? Now, I'll be honest with you, Steph, we, uh, I spent years trying to write this handbook. My mum used to work in sort of HR and she helped me with the policies. It never got written and uh, I had to hand it over to Megan. So Megan wrote it for us, didn't you? Yeah, I think it's something that has to be done sort of together, but guided by HR. Um, so obviously I needed your support and your input in some of the policies and how you wanted them to be written. But when it came to actually writing them up and knowing exactly what needed to be in there, um, that's sort of where I came in and took over. Yeah, so the pet sort of specific stuff. So like you at the moment you're writing a policy um, for us around um, security of the shop and um, prevention of dog thefts within the shop and the steps that employees should take um, should uh, a nasty situation like that arises. And that's just an amendment that you're putting into our handbook and that will all be sent out to our employees to, to, to physically sign or sign uh, virtually by a signable, just to make sure that they've read it and they understand what the new policy is. So this is something that you're helping with us at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, and like you said, sort of with the, um, the animal specifics, that's where... I would struggle. I love dogs. I love animals, but I don't know that much about them. Um, so, yeah, I sort of add the HR side to what you're doing in the actual business. So tell us about your your company. Tell us about how you got into um, HR and helping small businesses with their, uh, with their, with their HR issues. Okay, yeah. So initially, when I sort of left school and went to university, I wanted to do politics. And then I decided that I didn't want to do that um, after doing some work with a political party. So then I was sort of looking in different um, avenues of business and I was just instantly attracted to HR. Um, but I'll admit initially it was more the thought of helping employees against these big corporate organisations. <laughs> but after studying HR and actually working in HR, you realise that is not what HR is. Um, and I think it's still a common misconception that that's what HR is, the sort of personnel department. Um, but it's not like we are here to support businesses. And that's what I enjoy doing. Um, so, I mean, like you said earlier with the redundancy thing, Bill, you probably never would have gone through that process if yeah. you didn't have the support of HR. And I think that there are so many businesses like that that are sort of scared and they shy away from certain things. But actually, we worked out that that saved your business a massive amount of money, didn't it? That's right. It, it, saved, it saved us money. And I think the um, the thought of the, the process of going down redundancy, the the different legal terms, the limits, the time limits, the the worry about being like doing something wrong and then it all coming back to bite you and being sued because you've done something wrong or you've worded the letter incorrectly or you've not done due diligence or done the process properly, that that would just put you off straight away. And then you you're left with a business where you're unhappy with it because it's not performing or you're unhappy with what's going on inside the business or you're spending too much money and your business goes under. Whereas with your help, we're able to take some practical steps and um, with your advice as well and sort that out. So that was valuable, if you ask me. Um, with regards to um, 
what you do with small businesses, how, how, how does your business help? Uh, obviously, we've outlined some of these things now, but how, how do you go forward and help small businesses with their HR? Yeah, so firstly, I suppose it's about reducing the risk. So I'm trained in employment law. I keep myself up to date with employment law. I know where to sort of look for any changes and when to expect them. Um, so employment law does change all the time. And I mean, with us leaving Europe, a lot of our law is directed from Europe. Um, so it's likely that there's going to be a lot of changes coming up. Um so just things like that, which businesses, they don't have the time to actually go and research these things or keep up to date with them because they're too busy running their business. So I suppose it's about reducing risk by keeping up to date with everything, but also saving businesses time as well. Um, business owners are so busy, they don't have time for the HR stuff. And it is one of those things that is never going to be a priority to a business owner because it doesn't have a direct impact on the bottom line. Um until obviously you might have an unemployment tribunal and it's too late. So I suppose it's, yeah, it's just making sure that businesses don't get to that stage. And what I actually, and I've said this before, what I actually like about um, your services that we have is you watch our sort of Facebook page. So when we when we announce, you know, we're going to have to go into lockdown, we're going to have to, we're going to have to sort of reduce our services, straight away you're messaging us going oh does that mean you're putting your staff into furlough should i send out <laughs> and you're like yeah you know it's all sorted it's all done for us so again more time saving and more money saving for us because you're you're sort of watching out for us but what i'd like to say is you don't just watch out for us as well you watch out for our employees and um i know that our employees are welcome to speak to you directly uh, if they've got any issues and you've done them a nice little video just introducing yourself because obviously you are you're not in based aren't you so yeah and so you know we're not face to face we don't meet face to face we're all it's all via zoom but you've sat in on our um our sort of uh, yearly sort of performance meetings with our employees something else that we've introduced into our business and you've done a nice little video just introducing yourself so that again we can just nip any problems in the before I begin, because they can reach out to you or we can reach out to you to to say, you know, we've got an issue here. How do we deal with it? Which is really nice. Yeah. And that's why I like working with smaller businesses as well, because you do sort of get to still have that um, support for the employees as well. I mean, obviously, my services are for you. But I mean, if your employee has a question it might sometimes be easier for them to come to me and ask the question rather than to go directly through you. And of course, I would always keep you up to date and let you know if they had raised something. Um, but it can cut out the middleman sometimes and it may be something that they kind of want to know about before they approach you with it. Um, and I suppose I can then give you the heads up that they're asking about it as well. Yeah, and again, you know, your services are coming into um coming handy again we've got a lady who's uh who's pregnant with us which is fantastic but again we need hr support around um policies risk assessments um you know when does certain time limits kick in when they need to give us forms and statutory pay and all stuff like that so there's never a dull moment is there <laughs> no, you've kept me busy in the last year <laughs> So if someone here who's um, who's watching and uh, maybe they work on their own or um, they've got a small team, but they're looking to um, increase their team, should we talk about recruitment and um, ways that a person, a, a recruitment consult, uh, 
HR consultant like yourself, um, what would be the best methods of recruitment for these people to employ? Yeah, so there are so many methods of recruitment and each of them has their pros and cons. Um, it literally depends on the business. So larger businesses might want to use the online jobs boards and stuff, mm -hmm. but sometimes smaller businesses that are sort of wanting people in the local area, it's often better to actually advertise more locally. So for example, putting a radio advert out, depending on what the role's for, um, advertising on social media, your website, um, we're looking for apprentices, so even going through the colleges and asking if they have anybody that they know is interested. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as well with roles like that, word of mouth can be so powerful. So just sort of getting the message out there that you're recruiting and in sort of small local areas, that will just spread like wildfire and you might end up getting some really good talent from, from people that you know. Yeah, and um, we've always talked about um, hiring on your values. Now, I'm uh, if I am employing someone, I might necessarily want them to be um, enthusiastic about the job that they do and um, not necessarily fully trained in what they do. But we talk about value-based recruitment. Can you explain to people what that means? Yeah, so value-based recruitment is really important. And I think that all businesses should at least consider this when they're coming up with like their interview questions and the person specification when they're looking to recruit. Um, and it basically just means hiring not on the skills and experience that people have, although you would still consider that, um, but actually looking at the values of your company. And if you don't have any set company values, not all businesses do, then just thinking about what's really important to you. What do you want out of your employees? Um, and actually writing those things down. And then when you're interviewing people, think, are they showing those values or not? Because, I mean, you can always train somebody in a role, but getting the right, you can't change a person's personality. So getting the right person is really important. So I, for me, my values might be that they're, they're punctual, um, punk, they turn up to work on time, maybe five minutes before, they uh, they sort of look for work when they're not busy, so is there stuff extra that they can do? Are they presentable because they're going to be speaking to customers? Are they willing to learn and muck in? I suppose they're kind of, are they honest? They're kind of my sort of values that I'd be looking for within a person that I was about to hire. Are they sort of common values, would you say? Or Yeah, definitely. I mean, everybody sort of wants an employee that's going to show up on time and they're going to come in every day. Um, and then, I mean, things like using their initiative to go and do something when the work's run out. Again, that's quite a common value, but probably more common in a role where, they're likely to maybe have quieter moments, maybe between pets and stuff. Um, there are some companies that wouldn't even think about things like that because they actually have values where they um, sort of, once you've done all your work, you can go. There are companies out there that don't even contract employees to certain hours. They just work when they want, but they have to get certain jobs done. Or, for example, companies that give unlimited holidays. And it's the same sort of concept. So different companies will differ on what their values are, which is why I think it's important to consider what yours are before you actually recruit. Yeah. And is, would that be something um, you'd offer with part of your recruitment process if you're helping a business out with speed to sort of draw out those values to make sure that they're written down for any yeah. questions and that? 
yeah definitely so one of the first things I would do before I drafted an advert or anything I would sort of speak to the client and ask exactly what it is they're looking for um and then I would make sure that those things are incorporated into every sort of part of the recruitment process so the advert the interview the selection criteria just to make sure that we really are getting that exact person that's going to fit the company So we're um, currently using your services um, again to recruit an apprentice. Um, our advert's currently out there and we're sort of um, streamlining the, the applicants down to the interview process. What's the, for those that are interested in um, maybe taking the apprentice on for themselves, what's the sort of recruitment process like for an apprentice? Yeah, there has been a lot of interest around apprentices at the moment. Um, And the process is actually a lot simpler than a lot of people think. Um, So the first thing you would do is to find a course and a training provider that offer that course. So that would be sort of your local college or it might even be an online college. Um, Once you've chosen the course and you're confident that you can actually give that course, um, and you can facilitate it, it's then about advertising and trying to find that right candidate. Um, And again, this is where your values-based recruitment is going to really come in because you're not necessarily asking for any skills or experience at this point with an apprentice because you're taking them on to train them. Um, So you really need to make sure you've just got the right person that you want to train up and that's going to be successful in your business. Um, But yeah, so once you've um, recruited and you've chosen who you're going to um, offer the apprenticeship to, you just send over the details to the training provider and set up an account with HR. So that you register as having an apprentice and that allows you to claim back the funding. So it's a reasonably straightforward process, just as long as you sort of follow each stage. And what sort of um, funding is available at the moment? I know you've looked into a bit of it for us. Yeah, so there is actually an an enhanced um, incentive at the moment to take on apprentice. So usually it would be £1,000 that you get back from the government. At the minute, you get an additional £2,000 for any apprentice that's taken on before the 31st of March. Do do they have to do um, a set number of hours with you or...? Yeah, so as an apprentice, they would have to do a minimum of 30 hours and then 20% of that has to be sort of learning through the college, so off-the-job training, as it's commonly referred to. Um, But you can offer more than 30 hours as well. It's just a minimum of 30. So it's pretty much a a full-time role, isn't it? And what sort of pay do you have to offer an apprentice? So the rate of pay is currently £4.15 per hour so obviously a lot less than minimum wage for somebody that's not an apprentice um that may go up in April but I can't imagine it will go up by March <laughs> so so we, we had a discussion didn't we around um traineeships and apprentices and there is a difference um but what were the pros and cons around um recruiting an apprentice so I think one of the main pro- well, obviously one pro is that it's a lot cheaper than having um, a normal employee that you have to pay national minimum wage to. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of businesses don't necessarily focus too much on that because although they might want to reduce costs through staff, they do want the right person as well. So I think more important um, sort of benefits to hiring an apprentice is probably that you can train them how you want to train them. So they're not going to have picked up any bad habits from previous employers. They're not going to be cut in corners. And they literally will be shaped by however you want them to perform. So it really gives you that control over how they are going to develop in that role. 
which you don't tend to get with somebody that's already got experience and, as I said, may have picked up some bad habits. Yeah, definitely can agree with that. I mean, over the years, we've hired um, quite a few apprentices. We've been in business for 16 years now, and some of them have actually stayed with us for sort of over five years, sort of six, seven years. And they, you know, they get to know the business so well and they become a really valuable part of your business. And we've trained them from sort of school, leaving age all the way through to um, sort of staying with us. So the answer's um, put a comment on there now saying, does the age of the apprentice make a difference to the wage? No, it doesn't. So obviously an apprentice can be any age, but the rate of pay would be the same. That's for the first year, isn't it? And then after- Yeah, just for the first year. After the year, they go on to the minimum wage for the age, is that right? That's right, yeah. And it usually an apprenticeship would take between a year and 18 months. Yeah. So do you normally, um, would you advise to issue your apprentice with a, a fixed contract for, say, a year and try and get all that work done and then review them after a year? Or how would you proceed with that? So you can't actually do it like that. Once you commit to an apprentice, you sort of commit to them finishing that apprenticeship regardless of how long it takes them. So I suppose you just have to be conscious of managing their progress. Um, So I suppose in a way that kind of prevents poor employers from just rushing them along or they don't finish the apprenticeship at all. But when you have to pay them a bit more, you're like, oh, no, thanks, Um, which obviously isn't fair. So at the beginning, you will have a apprenticeship agreement and that will set out sort of the terms of the offer that they will complete the course. Um, And then there's no obligation to offer them a role at the end of it. However, if you didn't, it would still be classed as a redundancy. So you still have to go through the process of sort of terminating them. Um, But they would have less than two years service. Mm -hmm. Well, they should have because they should have finished it in under two years, which means they can't claim unfair dismissal and they don't have a right to redundancy payment or anything. So essentially, you just have to give them the reason as to why you're not offering them a job. Okay, and I suppose within the um, apprenticeship agreement, there must be some kind of break clauses in there like you would have with normal um, contracts of employment, so like gross misconduct and, you know, things like that, that sort of outlines why they may be asked to leave earlier than completing their apprenticeship. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you did have a handbook, then you could ask them to sign that as well. They could, they're still working in your workplace, so they should still be abiding by all the same rules as all of your other employees. So you're not, uh, although you're tied in to make sure that they finish their apprenticeship, maybe in 18 months, um, there are ways that should that relationship not work out, you can ask them to leave your your business. Because as a small business owner, there's nothing more scary than um, having someone in your business that doesn't fit your business or is not performing or is causing um, particular issues that you need to deal with. And then you feel trapped because there's no way of perhaps asking them to leave. Is that right? Yeah. And I understand that it is common in a lot of businesses, but you will never be trapped with a bad employee. As long as you manage it and take the steps that are necessary, there are always ways to get out of a contract that isn't working. If Because, I mean, essentially, if they're not performing or if they're a really bad employee, then they're not upholding their end of the contract. So you are able to terminate it. It's just knowing how to do it um, and doing it properly. Yeah, and I hope that um, 
I'd rather encourage people to embrace the apprenticeship idea. I think it's a really good um, option for you as a, a pet groomers. You get the ability to train someone in how the how you do it. Um, but there's always those options if you do um, if, if a relationship does break down. There is ways of asking them to leave. So if that's putting you off, then there obviously are ways of uh, asking them to leave, and you're not trapped with an apprentice for eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's worth taking the chance. Um, it's not very often that they don't work out because, as we said earlier, you can train them how you want them to perform. So, And if you choose the right person in that recruitment process, you should really minimise the chance of getting stuck with a bad apprentice. Yeah. And something that we've been talking about, sorry, it's just a, a quick question here uh, from Sophie, just saying what percentage of time did the apprentice have to be allowed to do college work? Was that um, 20%? 20% of the week, working week? Yeah. And we were discussing this the other day, wasn't we? So you could either ask the um, person to stay at home and complete their portfolio, um, or maybe you've got a quiet space in the in the shop or the, the salon as to where they want to sit down and do their work. It doesn't have to be, it could be either or, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, some of the courses may require them to actually attend college, but I think it's a lot more common now that they actually do the work on their own, especially with COVID, college is not actually really being open. Um, Whether that changes after COVID, I'm not sure, but I think there is more of an emphasis on them being allowed to sort of do it wherever they want. But as I said to you the other day, it's probably best to have them on site because it's peace of mind for you knowing that they are working towards their um outcomes and they can ask for help if they need it and yeah. also it's just i suppose setting them up for actually being in that work environment full time as well especially if you have um sort of a school leaver or a younger apprentice that hasn't really worked that much um when they finish their apprentice they're not going to have an extra day at home so it's it's all prepares them a little bit more yeah and i think it's um it's nice for them to be in the workplace so they can start absorbing you know the busyness they can start absorbing like how you talk to customers they can listen to how you deal with deal with animals and how you deal with customers so they can always they're always learning whether they've got their their portfolio open and they're doing their portfolio they can still be observing what's going on and how you sort of how you treat customers and how you treat the animals and each other so you can be always sort of learning yeah but, um one question that we were talking about actually was um, if the apprenticeship doesn't work out, we might look at taking on a Saturday person, um, which for us generally being a someone that's, that's at school and um, they want a Saturday job. What sort of um, considerations do we need to take uh, around that if we're taking on like a younger person for Saturday hours um, just to help out with the cleaning up and the bathing and the prepping of the animals? Yeah, so I suppose it's the same as sort of taking on any other employee. It's just making sure that you're not hiring them as a Saturday person on, say, a six-hour contract, and then you're asking them to come in all the time, and they're actually going over those hours. Also, if they are younger, as in sort of under 18, there are other health and safety issues that you have to think about. They should never be left on their own, things like that. Um, So you would probably have to have a look at your risk assessment and redo those. Um, But that's only if they were sort of under 18. Um, um, we have found it's a good way to um, recruit in the past. We've had um, people that have worked with us on Saturdays 
And then um, as they become more and more available, as in school holidays, they, they come in and work with us and get more experience. And then when they leave school, it's like, you know, would you be interested in an apprenticeship? Would you be interested in carrying on working more hours with us? And we found some really good candidates and some really good employees that way as well. Yeah, I suppose it's kind of like a try before you buy for both parties, <laughs> isn't it? So they get to see if they would like working there. They get to know the business and the people that work in it. And then you get to see their work ethic and can sort of determine whether they would be a good apprentice or employee. Yeah, it works quite well. So we've got our team. Uh, we've got our employees. And there's people in the group that have probably got employees. Um, so let's talk about employee relationships and um, how you can build good relationships with your employees and also how you can deal with challenging relationships with your employees. What sort of um, tips would you give people regarding the good um, relationships, creating good relationships with your employees? So to create good relationships with your employees, I think it's important that you communicate with them and that you value your opinions. So that communication needs to be two way. So they need to feel comfortable to come to you if they have any problems or even suggestions of how to improve things. Um, at the end of the day, your employees are the people that work in the business day to day. They do the processes over and over. So I think creating a culture in the workplace where they feel confident that they can raise any sort of suggestions to improve things is really, really helpful to your business. Um, I've worked in companies before, well, worked for companies, sorry, where they have sort of not really valued their employees' opinion and it really demotivates them and they just think, well, I'll just come and do my job then if if that's all I'm here for sort of thing. You should, I always think you should see your employees as part of the business and part of their leading towards your progress. So you want them to really buy into it and be engaged in it as well. And, um, you know, rewarding employees doesn't just have to be about money, does it? No. So I've, there's a lot of sort of um, research on this, intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. So pay is literally not the main motivator for employees. Um, obviously, we all go to work to get paid, um, but there's always going to be another job out there that's always going to pay you as well. So you really have to go the extra mile to increase your sort of employee value proposition, which means your what you offer to them, basically. Um, especially if it is a lower paid job. So if you're hiring someone on minimum wage, then you need to do a little bit more than just pay them because they could get that anywhere. Um, so it's things like, as you said, rewarding them and recognising when they've done good work, um, making them feel valued. Um, there are other things such as, I'm trying to think what else you could do now. <laughs> we've, uh, well, we've, we've gone, well, we actually sat down with our employees and sort of had a little bit of a team meeting and sort of said, you know, how, what if we paid uh, for your mobile phone bill? And, you know, yeah. that was quite difficult. They actually said no. Uh, one employee had a, a £20 contract and she was like, no, I'm really quite happy with that. Whereas another one had a £60 contract. So straight away, you're creating sort of a divide amongst them. And then all they sort of said, actually, is they just like to be taken out and um, have the odd meal out now and then, um, your treats. Um, so, you know, we found a fantastic company called Piglet's Pantry, which does like, um, you can send people cakes through the post. So we've done that with them. Um, we've... Uh, well, we've given our employees, let's be careful how you word this, given our employees like Amazon gift cards over the past just to um, say thank you. And we have a WhatsApp group and any um, 
any good reviews that we get through the business because we work as a team, I always share those good reviews with everyone because we're all working towards those good reviews. We're all working as part of the team. So I want everyone to be included in that and um, everyone know. But also little things like um, providing tea and coffee, that can go a long way, kind of. Yeah, honestly, small gestures like that go such a long way with employees. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember you talking about the phone thing. Um, and I think in some companies, probably it would work. But like you said, you're automatically sort of creating this divide. You have to be careful that the person with the £20 phone bill is not going to say, well, hers is £60 and mine's £20. So where does my £40 come from? Because it can get it can get very complicated. It does. And, you know, you, you kind of come up with these ideas and you think, oh, I could do that. I could do this. And then you don't look at it from the other side and then all of a sudden you're like creating a divide amongst them and it's all gone wrong. And <laughs> so yeah. I suppose treat everyone equally as much as you can as well, isn't it? Which is where the sort of communicating with them comes from as well. Because like you said, you spoke to them about it and realised that actually it probably wasn't a good idea. But if you hadn't had that conversation with them and just implemented it, then all of this sort of underlying tension may have actually came to the surface at some point, whereas it didn't because you asked them what they wanted and that wasn't it. So you could have wasted a lot of money on something that wasn't actually going to bring any sort of results to your business. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, we're, we're actually a limited company, so you do get allocated allowances per employee so you can take them out for um, Christmas dinner and stuff like that. So... Uh, we do use that in, during the year. We still we do take them out for dinners, COVID pending, and obviously we do <laughs> gift gift cards there. And yeah, it's just nice to surprise them, and it just it really sort of makes the atmosphere better. I think so. Um, it, it improves your employee relations. However, uh, we must <laughs> mention that employee relations don't always go so well, especially in small um, small shops. Um, where you're working with each other all the time, or you've got um, two members of part staff that work with each other all the time, you can um, create tension. So how do we deal with um, challenging employees? Yeah. So this is where I'm usually invited into businesses. I think the main advice I would give on this is to nip it in the bud as soon as you notice that somebody is sort of not performing or not behaving how you want them to. You need to sit them down and talk to them about it, because the longer you let it carry on, the more they think that it's acceptable and the more actually it does kind of become acceptable because yeah. you are accepting it. You're not dealing with it. And that's when it can sort of escalate and become a real problem. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be a performance management process or a disciplinary process at first. It would be ideal if you could avoid that altogether by just sitting them down and speaking to them. Yeah. Um, and if it's an employee that you've not usually had an issue with and suddenly the acting differently and not being that employee that you expect them to be or that they have been in the past then I suppose it's kind of understanding what's changed so has anything in the environment changed has anything in their personal life changed and is there anything you can do to help them to get through that so it's not initially about getting rid of a bad employee it's trying to resolve whatever's going on um and would that you say, you know, um, make notes all the time, no matter, you know, when you're talking to people? Yeah, have I told you that before? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I would, yeah, I would always advise when you have a conversation like this, even if it's not a formal meeting, I mean, if possible, I would have another person in the, in the room with you. Um, but if not, I would just make a note of everything that's said. And if it is a formal meeting, then definitely have another person in the room and allow them to bring somebody else as well. Um, but make sure that you do write everything down and that you ask them to read through it after and say, are you happy that this is a true reflection of what was discussed? And even get them to sign it so that you've got proof that that conversation happened. Both parties agree that's what was said. And if anything ever comes back from it in the future, you can sort of draw on that and say, no, we've had this conversation and you're still acting like this. And that's when you might progress it to a disciplinary process. So the, the notes can maybe be written and typed up or... Uh, yeah, either way, as long as you've got a record of what was said. And it doesn't have to be like a word for word um, writing down everything. It's just a general gist of what was discussed at the meeting. So no like tape recording or meetings? And, I wouldn't you... recommend that. If you are going to do that, then get consent. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we'd do we'd, we'd do something like that. So, um, is that the same sort of thing that um, applies if your employee is underperforming? Yeah. So, with underperforming, again, it might be that something's going on that's distracting them from their work. Something in their home life. It might even be a relationship with a colleague. <laughs> they could be being bullied or something. Um, so, it's really getting to the bottom of what's changed for them to not be performing. Um, if it's somebody new, so perhaps they're in the probation period, then that's the perfect time to make sure that you are sort of every week just monitoring their progress and managing their performance. And if it's not improving, then it's hard for a lot of employees to do this. But at the end of the probationary period, if you have any doubts and you don't think that they're going to work out, you just have to sort of pull the plaster off and let them go. Because otherwise you end up with an employee that's not right and it's not good for either party. Um, it can be quite destructive within your business, especially in a small business. Yeah, definitely. If you've only got a few employees and all the rest are fine and then you have a new employee and they're not pulling their weight or they're just not meeting the standards that are expected, then it can really demotivate the rest of the workforce. And it can also cause conflict and tension, which is not what you want in your business. So we talk about um, standards and that takes us quite nicely on to um, the employee handbook again. Like I hope we kind of touched on it earlier. And um, is that where you sort of, put your set your standards out is that where you set your stall and you know you expect your employees to perform to the policies you put into your employee handbook yeah definitely so you can't really manage someone's performance or their behavior if you haven't told them what's expected and how they're supposed to perform so that will literally be the reference point for any of these processes for example if i mean you said you've had issues with smoking in the past i don't know what those issues are but say if somebody's continually smoking outside of a, des a designated smoking shelter that could be a massive risk to the safety of your employees Mm -hmm. So actually, it could even be deemed gross misconduct in some companies. So you need that in your handbook to say, this is gross misconduct, you cannot do it. Otherwise, the person could say, well, I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to smoke there. Right. And if they if that's written in your policy and they sign to say that they read it, they understand it and they're going to abide by it, then it's a lot easier when you go to do that disciplinary process to put that in front of them and say, why was you doing it? You knew that you shouldn't be. Yeah, the issue we had was uh, people taking, I suppose, smoking breaks and then the non-smokers 
this morning. Uh, okay, yeah. Non-smokers not being, um, I suppose, treated fairly. Uh, that's probably the best way of describing it, isn't it? And again, you know, whenever I try to take advice on it and speak to um, Chamber of Commerce and, you know, insurance companies that provide this legal advice, they're like, what was your handbook saying? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, like, I don't yeah. have a handbook. <laughs> <laughs> so what sort of things should a handbook cover? Um, is it absolutely everything that you can think of? You know. I would put everything in there. I mean, they can be pretty extensive. The one I did for you was, was it 50, 60 pages long? Mm. Um, I think the important thing is, obviously, if you make it too long, it's not reasonable to expect that your employees have read it. Mm. Um, so it can have a lot of policies in, but you want to put the main ones at the front. And probably when you issue it, you want to sort of refer people to those policies so for example the discipline and grievance policy they're really important ones as is the absence policy because they're ones that are going to come in sort of day to day um and so yeah it's a case of making sure that they actually understand the important policies in there but then you might have other policies in there that are not really going to be referred to that often but they're kind of just there in case they're ever needed and um if you're like us, you're an employee, employer, and um, you've been in business for a few years, you've got maybe one or two or maybe more employees, you've never had a handbook, how, how would you suggest that you introduce this into your business? Yeah, so it's difficult because this this does happen with a lot of businesses. Um, they sort of introduce it after they have employees. I get the question a lot, how many employees do I need before I get a handbook? <laughs> I'm like, um, one. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, a lot of um, people think that they don't need it until they have sort of a vast amount of employees and it's not true, but um, that's kind of not answering your question anyway. So (laughs) with regards to um, bringing it into a company that's been operating without one for so long, it's just, again, a case of explaining why you're suddenly introducing it so they don't feel like you're planning something to sort of get rid of them Mm -hmm. um, or to change anything. So, yeah, just telling them exactly why you're introducing it. Again, training in some of the important policies, as in just having a discussion with them about the absence policy, just to make sure that they are actually aware of it. Um, And then the important thing will be that you actually stick to the handbook. So obviously it's going to be new to you as well. You don't want to be saying, oh, you haven't stuck to this policy and then turn around and say, well, you didn't stick to that one. (laughs) So the employee handbook is for both parties. Yeah, and I suppose um, maybe have a team meeting. Do you need to reissue contracts of employment when you're issuing a handbook? You wouldn't necessarily have to. However, I would recommend just revising the contract as well, just to make sure that there's nothing contradictory between the two. You want them to match up and align. Um, And also, a lot of people make their handbook contractual, as in they'll put a clause in the contract saying that the handbook is included. So again, in that sense, you want to do them in conjunction with each other and make sure that they both reflect the same thing and that they're not going to be contradictory in any way. And I think it's really important to stress to your employee or employees that the handbook is there to protect them as much as it is to protect the business. And it's to, uh, the handbook often um, details their rights 
as much as it details what the business expectations are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, take the grievance policy, for example, that is aimed more at an employee. Obviously, handling the grievance procedure properly is going to be an important aspect for the employer. But actually, it's an employee that's going to raise a grievance if they feel that they need to. And that's one that sort of, um, it gets a lot of um, employers backed up a little bit because they kind of take it personally against them. But actually, all they're doing is resolving an issue that they've got through the correct process. Um, but I think that's a perfect example of a policy that's in there for both parties, but actually probably more so for the employee. And it's not just for the employer to mark down all their rules. It's actually just to ensure that the relationship runs smoothly. Yeah, that's it. And um, so, again, it sort of shows, you know, you might have people in this group that, a very small business and maybe having one employee and thinking, wow, this just sounds like um, so big for us. And I have to just stress that, you know, things like um, your handbook, as I found out personally, it's just like an insurance policy. You don't need it until you need it, you know. Yeah. You don't need insurance until something goes wrong. Obviously, there's something you need legally to have insurance for, but you don't need a staff handbook until you come across issues and problems within that business. And then there's like the, the anxiety that that can cause you as a business owner um, just takes over and you just don't know where to turn. And you probably end up spending more money by getting professionals in to help you. Whereas if you spent a little bit of money in the beforehand and getting all these things straight, um, like getting that insurance policy sorted, um, it will relieve you of stress time and probably save you money as well won't it yeah definitely so that's really important like if you've got one employee you need a handbook you need to sort out your hr and make sure that you're we don't get taught hr at school i don't you've been taught all this you've gone and studied all this so this is your area of um speciality the same as you probably can um groom a dog you know that's what that's what we're trained in but we're not training hr so that's why we need to get this advice isn't it yeah exactly i mean nobody's expecting you to know hr policies but that's where when you sort of come into these problems or even to avoid getting into problems it's worth just um getting that specialist knowledge from people that are trained in it and that do know sort of the ins and outs of what should and shouldn't be done yeah. So we're, um, we've just gone through some really difficult times as small businesses. You know, we've, we've not been told to close by the government, but we've been told to reduce our workload. Um, we've had to cope with this new term called furlough, which uh, I think I, I said to you when it was announced, I spent hours and hours Googling it, trying to work out what furlough was, and then suddenly realised it's not in English law, is it? It's not an English no. term. It's an American term so i suppose everyone had to work out what this thing called furlough was um so and as i've sort of um, said earlier we identified a situation where uh, we needed to make um some people redundant so maybe you can just um give us a, a quick guide to redundancy and what sort of circumstances the business would be uh, looking at if they wanted to make an employee redundant in these times yeah, so unfortunately, a lot of companies have had to make redundancies at the moment. And I think probably a lot more when furlough does end. Um, so 
with redundancy, it's probably one of the scariest processes you can do alone if you don't seek HR advice. And I would never recommend that anybody does it without HR advice. Um, The process is not that complicated, but it's very important that you get the process right. there's a lot of case law around um, redundancies where actually there was a fair redundancy situation, but it was just handled so badly that they ended up paying out so much compensation because they didn't follow the procedure. So, I mean, the reasons why you can fairly make somebody redundant is if the business is closing, Mm -hmm. if the business is relocating, if there is a reduction in workload or if somebody else is going to be doing that job so for example if you've got a machine that's going to be doing that job now um and also just generally if there's a reduction in the work so in um in an employment tribunal they wouldn't really ask you to provide proof that the redundancy was fair However, you should always have a business rationale proving why, because you have to put that to your employees when you announce that you're going to make them redundant. So the sort of process for making people redundant is firstly to consider if there's any way that you can avoid making redundancies. It should always be the last resort. And you should always be able to prove that you've considered alternatives as well. Um, Some people will have things like layoff or short time working in their contracts. So that would be an example of avoiding redundancy. And then also furlough, that would be one as well. Um, But obviously, as we discussed last year, you can still make people redundant whilst furlough is available if you know that actually there's just not enough work for those people anymore, regardless of whether you're allowed to open again or not. Um, so if you've considered all alternatives and you are 100% sure that you have to make redundancies, then you have to announce that to your workforce with the reasons why um, and sort of suggesting who may be at risk of redundancy. You would then consult with all of your employees individually to see if they can think of any alternatives. Um As we said earlier, they work in the day-to-day of the business. They may think of something that you actually haven't thought of, or they may all come together and say, how about if we all agree to only work 30 hours instead of 39 and see if that works? And that's something that you'd have to consider if it was raised. Um, So as part of the consultation process, it has to be meaningful, which means that you have to actually not just do it as a tick box exercise and consider what's been discussed and if there is anything else. However, if you've announced it, you've consulted it and consulted with everybody and there is literally no alternative, um, then you'd put people in a pool and you would come up with a selection matrix and just sort of rate everybody on some objective criteria. And so then, you, what would be your objective criteria? What do you use for that? So that would be things like um, timekeeping and attendance, mm-hmm. performance, if they have any disciplinary issues. Um, things to avoid would be things like flexibility, which could be potentially de- deemed discriminatory. So obviously, if you're choosing people to stay because they work a lot of overtime, well, actually, you might be indirectly discriminating against women who have children and can't work overtime, if that makes sense. Yeah. So and that is a common thing that a a common mistake that employers make as well, things like that. So it's just things that you can sort of prove, ideally with numbers, so periods of absence, things like that. Nothing subjective or 
sort of your opinion of somebody. Um, and I think I said to you as well, if possible, get two different people to fill out the skills matrix and then take an average of the scores just to try and reduce bias a little bit more. Yeah, we did. Um, my wife and I did one each on each employee and then, then sent you the results. So we did them independently to see how they scored. So, so the, the, already you've gone through so much, which would just straight away just put me off <laughs> because yeah I know so sorry I... Consider, isn't there? <laughs> yeah it, it's a very long process I probably just sort of went into a little bit too much detail there but essentially all you have to do is announce the redundancies consult with the employees produce a skills matrix and then make redundant the people that come out lowest on the skills matrix um and then I suppose the rest of it would be down to getting HR advice just to make sure that you're not being discriminatory or anything. Um, but you shouldn't be put off by the redundancy process because it's just the process. If you see out the process and you do it step by step, it's fine. It's nothing to worry about. No, I mean, there's sound business reasons as well for this to happen. So sometimes it's like you either make changes to your business which does result in redundancies or you don't have a business at the end of six months um for example so you know sometimes you that's part of being a business owner isn't it having to make those difficult decisions uh for the, the greater good of the business unfortunately um and that's i suppose what caused a lot of stress for me and my wife was that because we were such a small team these you're having to deal with people but that's where we were able to use your support to support us in um, helping with the, the the emails and the, the communications with the employees and the conversations with them. So kind of um, protected us a little bit with what was going on as well. So it was, that was good. Um, and is there like time limits for employees? Uh, I think if they've been with you for less than two years, they have rights to have been with you over two years. Yeah, so this comes down to unfair dismissal, really. I mean, the risk with redundancy is an unfair dismissal claim. That's what you'd claim if you were to handle the process wrong. Um, however, if an employee has less than two years service, they can't actually claim unfair dismissal. They're not entitled to claim that. So ideally, you would want the people with less than two years service to be the ones that are being made redundant. Sometimes it will be the case that you really don't want to lose somebody because they're maybe your top talent and it's just not going to benefit your business to lose that person. However, I would always advise to look at those people with less than two years service first. Right, right. And so redundancy is one way of um, losing an employee. You know, it's where you've got personal conduct. Is there other ways or is that the only way to keep them? So there are five potentially fair reasons that you could miss, uh, dismiss an employee. So redundancy is one. Um, there's also conduct, so behavior, performance. Um, and then so there's also one that allows for any legal sort of practices. So, for example, if um, you had a HGV driver that got caught drink driving, then you could dismiss that employee because legally he's not allowed to perform his duties anymore. Could that be similar um, for someone that works in a dog grooming business? You know, they're handling people's pets. You don't want them to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs whilst like using scissors and clippers and stuff. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's something that you should put in your um, employee handbook as well about <laughs> being under the influence at work. That's an employee <laughs> um, <handbook> again. <laughs> yeah, honestly, it's the most important thing you can have. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so they're the four reasons that you can dismiss. And then there is one more, which is some other substantial reason. So, I mean, that leaves it pretty wide open. You can basically get rid of them for anything. It's just about how reasonable the decision is. Right. And obviously, redundancy, you have to compensate them um, with regards to wages and depending on how long they've been with you. Whereas I'm assuming the other dismissals, um, they're pretty instant or sort of. Yeah. So that depends. Sorry, that depends on how they're dismissed. If you're dismissed for gross misconduct, um, then you are dismissed without notice or pay. Mm. If you're dismissed for misconduct, so performance or continued sort of conduct behaviour, um, then you would get your notice pay. So you'd still work, you'd either work your notice or be paid in lieu of your notice. But if it's gross misconduct, then it's instant and the pay stops from the minute that that decision is made. Okay. Um, something that I um, thought of just whilst we were chatting, and this happens a lot in the industry, you know, we're talking a lot about employees at the moment, whereas a lot of people in the pet grooming industry have self-employed people working with them. I don't know if you can say whether they work for them because they're self-employed. Is that right? They, yeah. They're very specific kind of, uh, well, do you have any control over them if they're self-employed? It's really, really important to make sure that you are identifying their status, whether they're self-employed, a worker or an employee, and that you're actually sort of treating them as per that contract. So as you've just said, there are three main things that you should be looking at. So the first one is mutuality of obligation. So that just means, are they obliged to work and are you obliged to offer them work? So if they are self-employed and they're a contractor, then actually they're not obliged to take any work that you offer them and you're not obliged to give them any work. Um, If you are sort of demanding that they're there, Mm -hmm. this is um, not if you've obviously got a contract for, say, a week's work or whatever. Um, But if you're demanding that they work on the next project, then actually you're exerting a lot of control over them. So that's kind of suggesting that even though you're saying they're self-employed, they're actually not. Um, this, so if um, so, I suppose if you've got someone who's self-employed and they're working with you and you say, all right, I've got um, six dogs booked in on Monday, I really need you to be on on Monday, uh, you've got to be in on Monday. That is kind of um, going against the self-employed kind of terms, isn't it? They could, yeah. they could refuse to come in, couldn't they? They could refuse to come in, yeah. And I suppose with that, you would just not use them again for work. However, if there was an employee, you'd obviously have to follow a process to discipline them for that, for not coming in. Um, So, yeah, that's one of the downsides of having somebody self-employed, I suppose, is that they can just say, oh, I'm not coming in. And there are no consequences other than that they lose your business. That would just be the end of sort of the contract with them, if that makes sense. Is this something that you... um work on yourself could do you draw up contracts between um businesses and self-employed people is that something that you can do so yeah, say someone yeah. vents a table with a pet groomers um would you work out like a contract between the two of them or 
Yeah, and I would advise definitely to get one written up as well if you are going to use someone self-employed. So it'd be important to have things like um, clauses in there that say that they can't steal your clients because you're bringing in a stranger that has their own business and actually they might have ulterior motives for coming and helping you out. And you've probably worked hard for those clients and you don't want to lose them to somebody that's just came in to do a week's work or whatever. Um, So yeah, a contract for a contractor is just as important as for an employee. You just want to set out what they are and what they aren't allowed to do. And if you've got, um, this might get a bit technical now, if you've got a self-employed person and you keep telling them to come in on certain days and do certain hours, could they then turn around and say, oh, actually, you you need to pay me now for holiday because you're treating me like an employee. Um, could that happen? They could say that. It would depend on the agreement as well. If it's already said that they will do that many days, then again, you are exerting a lot of control, but they'd look at other things like, are they able to substitute? So are they able to send somebody else if they're not available on that day? Mm -hmm. That's um, another indication that actually they're self-employed. Um, also things such as, do they invoice you for the work at the end of the day? If they're invoicing you still, it's suggesting that they are actually still self-employed. So this control thing, it is one of the most important ones to look at, but it's it's not on its own. There are other things that will be taken into consideration to determine the status. Right. Have you got a preference over employed or self-employed if you were to hire people? It honestly depends on the business and what they're looking for. There are pros right. and cons to both. I mean, we've just spoke about one of the cons of self-employed is that they act they have absolutely no obligation to show up to work and that can leave you in a bit of a mess reputation wise um equally with an employee there are disadvantages for example if they're really bad and they don't show up to work then you have to follow a much longer process to actually get rid of them whereas with that self-employed person you just wouldn't use them again and you'd find someone else so it really does depend on the business and what you're actually looking for and if you're going to go for an employee you just have to invest that little bit more time into the recruitment process because you are making more of a commitment yeah i think we've always gone down the employed route because we want to have that control you know we we make that commitment to our customers saying uh, when you book your pets in um there's going to be someone there that can help you and help your pets and do the do the agreed dog room or cat room um whereas we didn't want self-employed people saying you know i didn't want to get out of bed this morning or i had a better offer or something like that so that's why us personally went down the employed route i have spoken to another groomer who had employees but i think they switched over to self-employed and she said that product product productivity went up and um, they became happier but i don't quite know the reasons before or why. Maybe they felt as though they were working more for themselves and yeah. sort of putting a bit more of the money on. I don't know, but um, so there's no right or wrong. Yeah, it just it really depends what you're looking for, your sort of business model, and what you think will work best for you. Really, um, we've just got. Uh, I'm conscious of time. I want to use up all of your afternoon, but. Um, <laughs> The uh, Anne's asked, um, how do you go about making a handbook? Um, you contact Megan. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's probably my, my real honest answer. You know, <laughs> my mum used to work for a company and did handbooks and she, used, she sent me all of her handbooks. So I, I spent days and days writing out all these policies and then I just had this real sort of like 
how do I know that's correct? How do I know that those policies are right? You know, am I writing the right policies? And I was Googling it and using the computer and making it up. And then I actually sent what I had over to, to Megan, didn't I? And um, I don't know, you probably ripped it up. And, <laughs> how you gotta, you got to be able to value your time and you've got to make sure, you know, this is your business Bible, isn't it? This is what your, your staff and you are going to rely on time and time again. You've got to make sure these handbooks are correct. And um, I don't think, you know, the time it takes to write one, you're better off probably outsourcing it, aren't you? So yeah, completely agree. It's really not worth the time or the stress. And also, when you have this handbook that you're going to be using every day, you don't want to be doubting if it's okay or not. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be confident that, yeah, um, this is right. This is not going to get me in trouble as long as I follow this process that's in the handbook. Otherwise you kind of might as well just carry on just winging it and doing what you're doing because writing it down doesn't really make that much difference if it's not correct. No, that's right. And um, just to, to be clear, I mean, your services um, that you offer yourself, you do offer um, independent services. It's not that you have to, uh, correct me if you're wrong, it's not that you have to um, take on your services over a year. You do do contract writing and handbook writing recruitment services as well as general HR services venue so yeah so it I obviously have the subscription sort of monthly support but yeah it, things like contracts and recruitment I'm not going to expect you to pay me for a year to write a handbook that will like be given to you in a month sort of thing it things like that would be done just on sort of the value of that particular piece of work yeah, this is so on. Um, we'll put all your contact details at the, in the um, chat. So, so I was asking how to get in contact with you. So the um, final sort of uh, bits that we just wanted to chat about, uh, as we are coming out of um, lockdown, fingers crossed, hopefully, but we're going to perhaps be open more often and we're going to have more contacts with our employees and with our customers and the rest of the team. We thought we'd cover a bit of COVID sort of related issues as well within the workplace. Um, so obviously the, the big one is what what should I do if a member of my team comes to work with COVID symptoms? I mean, that'd be quite worrying, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. So this is where actually you should have some form of policy in place. Um, That's your handbook again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this may not be specifically in everyone's handbook at the moment, but a policy definitely stating you have to sort of follow the government guidelines. If they're coming into the workplace with um, COVID symptoms or COVID, and obviously that is illegal, so they should not be at home. But also I've been advising employers that they actually discipline employees that are doing that. Um, I've had some one of my clients actually had an employee that came to work knowing that he had symptoms but he didn't want to lose out on money um yeah so not only is it illegal it completely puts the health and safety of everybody else at risk um so yeah i advise disciplinary for that so it is something that you can be disciplining your staff for but prior to doing that you have to make sure that they are aware of the rules i mean everybody should be but it's worth just having some posters or something around just sort of saying these are the symptoms isolate if you have them there are lots on the government website and stuff that you've probably got around already and um obviously we've all done the uh COVID risk assessment if you've got a, um, a shot with 
other employees are working as well. So it's a big problem on the COVID discipline as well, isn't it? Yeah, just having, just making sure that you have your policies in place um, so that everybody knows what they should be doing and that you're actually upholding your sort of obligation as an employer to protect your employees. Cool. And um, furlough, I mean, so at the moment we're using flexible furlough for our employees. We've got one uh, employee who uh, is kind of shielding and is on full furlough and then the others are coming in as and when demand is is needed is furlough that flexible i'm assuming you know we've put flexible furlough in do do we need to uh put them on furlough if they're self-isolating or we just treat it as sickness pay how's it all how's it all work yeah so with furlough it is quite flexible a lot more flexible now than it was when it was first introduced um in that you can have certain days where employees are in and certain days where they're furloughed um however when it comes to self-isolating i would not advise businesses to put employees on furlough just because that's not the intention of the furlough scheme the furlough scheme is for when work is not available because of covid but actually, if you're self-isolating, the chances are that you were supposed to be working. So the work is there. You're just not able to do it. Um, so I would be suggesting sick pay. Self-isolating. So, yeah, I see. Yeah. Um, so if you've got, um, we've obviously dog groomers, uh, reiterate this, dog groomers are allowed to be open at the moment. Um, they're not on the closure lists. Um, but we are reduced in our the amount of work that we can do because it's um, welfare only. But if um, we we are opened up um, again when Boris comes on and talks to us on Monday, and uh, we've got employees that have got childcare issues because the schools may not be open, what should we be doing around that? Yeah, this has been a really common problem actually over the last few months. Um, there are a lot of employees that actually. They can't take their children to other people to look after them and the schools are closed and it's like, oh my gosh, what can I do? I need to go to work. Um, I would just advise to be as flexible as possible. Obviously, you're a business and you need that employee in, um, but if they actually have no choice and they, they can't physically be there, then I would sort of sit down with them and see if you can work something out so that they maybe finish later uh, finish earlier sorry and start a little bit later or they work certain days and then the partner looks after the children on other days and it might involve them talking their partner talking to their employer as well um it's just about being flexible and trying to work out a solution it's about again it's that conversation isn't it and talking to people and being flexible and i suppose having a bit of empathy uh some people might not have children so they understand the pressures of having children. And some people might have children and the opposite way around. Uh, I've certainly come across um, employers over my life, working life, where they've not had children and they kind of don't quite understand some of the issues that schools and nurseries can cause you um, with childcare. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's just talk about talking to people, isn't it? Talking to your employee. Yeah, and I think... 
if they're in a situation whereby they have to they have to be at home, then it's better to talk to them and find a solution whereby they can be in for a few of the hours that they're supposed to be in, even if not all of them, than to lose them for the whole time that they're supposed to be in and be in more of a mess. So, and it will go a long way in engaging them after as well. So they'll sort of think, oh, they really supported me when I was struggling there. And it might just increase that loyalty and engagement going forward. Yeah, and then I suppose it's, it's just to say, just as important to have that conversation with your um, customers as well and explain why you can't be open on a certain day or why you need the dog to come in earlier. And hopefully they'll have the same sort of empathy with you around yeah. the that you're facing. Well, this what this question is, uh, I don't know if there's a lot of HR talk going on in the background between HR and um, barristers and solicitors. Is can an employer force an employee to have a vaccine? <laughs> oh, that's a you know I've been watching this on the press. I've been listening to debates on uh, the radio about this, and it really does split people. Uh, yeah, opinions. But I take it the HR world is currently looking at this, or yeah, definitely. So I've been reading some really interesting articles about this. Actually, sort of um, employment lawyers giving their opinion, sort of looking at it in terms of people's contracts and employment law. Mm. And yeah, it, it's still very torn, to be honest. I think the general consensus amongst HR and employment lawyers is that it can be done. You can force them to, and if they don't, then you can dismiss them. However, it would be very, very risky probably not that beneficial for your business and also just is it reasonable for you to do that it's kind of like a breach of human rights isn't it to force somebody to um have a vaccine and i mean as well another concern for me as a hr professional is that you could quite easily discriminate against people um if you are not offering them a job because they're not vaccinated or if you're dismissing them because of health and safety reasons because they're not vaccinated because you may have seen in the news there's sort of a lot of fame groups that are a bit more resistant to having the vaccine yeah. um also younger generations are probably less likely to have it as soon as older generations so if you're not offering jobs on that basis you could quite easily discriminate on race and also on age um so it while some employment lawyers are saying it's possible i would not be advising <laughs> to any of my clients <laughs> It's going to have um, to be tested, isn't it? It's going to have to be tested. And um, there's certainly not something that I want to go down on this chat because it is, it, from listening to the uh, debates on the radio and the press, it has just really split some communities in half. And yeah. some I think um, it's probably a conversation to have with your employees, maybe. Can we have that conversation with our employees? Can we ask them if they're going to have be vaccinated or is that... Yeah, of course. I mean, you can ask them. And if it came to a point where you were thinking, oh, then they're refusing the vaccine. I don't know what I should do. So you might think I don't want them here if they're not going to be vaccinated, which I'm sure many people wouldn't think. Um, But at the same time, this is a global pandemic that has really scared a lot of people. Hmm. And if you have sort of people that have been shielded and they're vulnerable, it's not that unreasonable to require people that are going to be around them to be vaccinated. Um, So, yeah, I mean, if it came to that situation where people were saying, oh, I'm not having the vaccine and actually 
for the health and safety of everybody at work, you want them to have it, then it would be a case of sitting down and saying, why are you not having the vaccine? Sort of understanding why they don't want it, seeing if there's anything you can do to reassure them, if there's anyone they can speak to. Um, And yeah, it's just about communicating again. We had a a very similar thought, actually, because a few weeks ago, our council opened up non-symptomatic testing. And I sort of said to Emma, you know, we're going in three days, three days a week and we've got appointments available and we've got people coming in. Is it an idea to, you know, go after work and have yourself tested? And it was, we had a little sort of good conversation around it. It's like, well, you can't force people to go and have a test, can you? Um, I think we ended up saying, you know, let's just put the details there so that people are aware that they can go and get tested. But we can't, we have no sort of power to say you will go and get tested after work to make sure you're okay. It's down to them, isn't it? So I think that's all. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're in sort of a sector like the NHS where you have to be tested is probably not reasonable for you to enforce that they have to go and have a test um, at the moment because they're not legally required to. Yeah, it's a it's a very difficult situation. I can't believe we've asked that question. <laughs> I'm just looking forward to some case law on it in the future. Yeah, I'm not sure the employee, the employee that takes that to uh, to tribunals probably not looking forward to that. There'll be some uh, very nervous employees and some very nervous employers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> seeing how that pans out. Um, so a couple more questions. We've got one coming in from the group as well. Um, what should we do if our, one of our employees is exempt from wearing a face mask? Yeah, this is something that's came up quite a few times as well. So people are exempt and it's quite easy to get an exempt card as well. You literally just print it off the internet. You don't have to show any medical history or anything. Okay. Um, so I've had quite a few sceptical business owners like, well, I don't believe that they're exempt. But the thing is, you can't force them to wear it. If they're saying they're exempt, you have to take them at their value. Um, you just have to trust that they are. Um, so if they're saying that they can't wear a face mask, then you have to come up with an alternative. So you can get sort of the face shields, the visors. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I'd suggest, see if they can wear them. Because a lot of the reasons for not wearing a face mask is that it's difficult to breathe, but they're a lot easier to breathe in. Um If they still have a reason as to why they can't wear that, then it would be looking at your practices. Can you do anything to sort of give them a separate working area to ensure that they're always two metres apart from everybody, make sure they're still washing the hands and stuff? Um, I mean, if they're being really, really difficult and they can't do any of that and it's not feasible for you to separate them um, two metres from everybody else, then it would be a health and safety concern for everybody else. And it would be a case of saying, okay, well, you're not actually able to work with us then at the moment. Um, And I suppose it'd be sort of like um, suspending them because of ill health reasons, even though they're not necessarily ill, it's still that they're not able to work because of their health. I suppose you've got a maybe a particular person that's causing a problem or has a problem to deal with, but um, you've got to consider everyone else and yourself as part with that problem and you've got to yeah. take into account everyone's right to health and safety. I yeah, your customers as well. It doesn't look yeah. great if they're coming in and you've got someone without a face mask on. And yeah, yeah so. so we've got... Um, a furlough question come in from Jade. Um, just reading it through. This is 
Where do we stand if an employee wants to be furloughed? So they want to be furloughed, but we have enough business to keep them working full time. Assuming there isn't a reason for the employee, such as parenting, um, they looks like Jade sort of kind of believes that the, the family that their employee, the employee's family is furloughed. So it appears that they just want to be at home with them. So um, Jade's got a, a business, she's got an employee, she's got enough work to sustain that employee. Um, but it sounds like the employees sort of asking them um, to be furloughed. Where do we stand if an employee wants to be furloughed? I don't think it is the employee's choice. No, it's not the employee's choice in any way. So if there is enough work available, you should not be furloughing that employee because at the end of the day, HMRC could quite easily do an audit and check if your furlough claim is genuine. And if they see that you had enough work, but you were furloughing them for absolutely no reason other than wanted to be furloughed, then you could put the business at risk, really. Um and if you undermine the legitimacy of your whole furlough request, it could be that you have to pay it back. Like, who knows what they're going to actually say going forward about these claims. But I'm sure that they'll be doing some form of audit and checks on people to try and draw back a bit of money at some point. Yeah, I mean, is there like a definition of a furloughed employee? Does that exist? or? So it, it's literally just, I don't know the exact definition off the top of my head, but it's just if there is not enough work available, then they take a temporary leave of absence paid. And the government are paying, the, the government are paying that absence. So maybe the employee thinks, well, you're all right, because the government will just pay 80% of my wages. But the, that can be audited. That can The government can come back and say, actually, we don't believe your claim and we want that money back. So yeah. And if I don't know if um, Jade, if you have any other employees, but it's not fair to the others either. No, no, and it's not fair to your customers as well. I mean, no. your customers are probably asking for um, for your help with their pets, and you're struggling with this person that's saying, "No, I don't want to come to work." <laughs> yeah, so maybe exactly. um, there's some other issues going on in the background, maybe for that employee, and maybe there needs to be some um, discussion with the employee around what furlough is for the spirit of furlough and why it's been introduced and why it's not um, applicable at this time um, maybe some annual leave or um, you know just sit down and chat to them I suppose yeah I would say with that to sort of ascertain exactly why she wants to be furloughed and then as you said Bill just explaining why she can't be um, and giving us some alternatives such as taking holiday it might be a fear. It might be like the fear of coming to work due to COVID. I mean, that's yeah. probably quite, a, quite um, probably see that quite a lot at the moment. People think that, you know, they just don't want to go to work and expose themselves to all that. Yeah, definitely. And it was a lot more um, present as well when people were first starting to open up again and bringing employees back. But I can imagine that people are still scared now. So in that instance, I would say just assure them in your COVID policies just make sure that they know they are safe and ask if they've got anything that they would suggest to make them feel more safe and more comfortable brilliant brilliant I'm just going to give um, people if that's all right with you if you've got enough time a couple of minutes to type in any questions that it may have for you we've covered so much today obviously hopefully we've helped a lot of people around their um, their HR questions and their HR problems maybe get a handbook I was going to say that again <laughs> say that again and again and again 
Um, so we're coming to sort of um, end of the year, or going through January. We might be coming to uh, April with furlough and um, lockdowns and stuff. If people are saying I'm thinking about this morning, is if people managed to use their holiday up, what, what can we do about that? Do they have to take their holiday over, or as in, so, can we say no? Yeah, ordinarily with holidays, you wouldn't be able to carry forward any holidays into the next year um, that were part of the statutory minimum, so the 5.6.5 weeks holiday, 5.6 weeks holiday, sorry. Um, But there was an amendment to the working time regulations, which actually allowed you to carry holidays for the next two years. So that means... Yeah, and you also accrue holiday whilst you're furloughed as well. So if you were furloughed all of last year... Then you accrued a lot of holiday that you literally could not take. Um, so you've potentially got sort of an extra year's holiday to take in the next two years. Um, but the important thing that I would say on that is that actually um, you don't have to approve their holidays just because they're allowed to carry it over. If it's not viable for your business, then you can still decline a holiday and ask them to take it some other time. Um, I've had a lot of businesses that are like, oh, they've got all these holidays, so I've approved it and now I'm short of staff. <laughs> and it's like, why did you approve it then? <laughs> but that is, I think that's quite important, actually. Um, holiday is the one thing that you do have ultimate control over, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You probably need to allow your uh, employees enough uh, opportunities to take that holiday but if it doesn't fit in with your model as in it's a busy time of year for you if you have a a spike in the summer you can um, decline that holiday request can't you they have no right to take that holiday on the days requested is that correct yeah exactly so they unless it's stated in your contract which probably isn't not many companies sort of state holidays anymore Mm. but unless it, it was said in a contract, they don't have a right to take it whenever. They have a right to take it, but it has to be approved by you. Right. Um, so again, look at your contract, see what your actual holiday policy is. But another thing that a lot of employers don't know is that you can actually cancel employees' holidays as well. You just have to give as much, well, twice as much notice as the holiday. So if they had a week off, you have to give them two weeks notice that you want them to cancel it. So we've actually got some some power for the employer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> power, there you go. <laughs> employer and power. Um, that's one uh, question I want to ask you. Is it a legal um, responsibility to have a contract of employment in place? It depends on uh, the employment status. If it's an employee, then yes. Right. Um, it's actually called a statement of particulars. That's the legal sort of minimum requirement, but it's essentially what would form your contract. Um and that has to be issued on or before the first day of employment. Right. Um, previous to April last year, it actually had to be issued within the first eight weeks, but it changed and it now legally has to be issued on or before the first day. Um, if they're self-employed, there's no obligation to give a contract. However, I'd always recommend that you do. Um, and if they are a worker, then again, it doesn't have to be a full contract, but they are entitled to a statement of their terms. Uh, something in writing is that you know where everyone knows where they stand exactly um, yeah Emma's put a cheeky question in so if we um, we're looking obviously to take on an apprentice or an employee at some point uh, what are the rules around smoking uh, can an employer refuse uh, to employ them if they're a smoker 
Um, no. <laughs> I wouldn't refuse to employ them because they smoke. However, you are not obliged to give them additional smoking breaks. They're entitled to the exact same amount of breaks as everybody else. Right. So if, um, if they have a half an hour lunch break and that's all they have during the day, that's when they can smoke. They can't go out and have a cheeky cigarette. Yeah, exactly. So they, they're no different to any other employee just because they smoke. So they shouldn't have any additional breaks because, I mean, as you've experienced before, it does cause tension with the other employees and it is unfair if they get extra breaks. Yeah, it does. It does cause tension between smokers and non-smokers. Um, you just can't, I suppose you can give them tea breaks maybe, but um, it has caused issues in the past with ourselves, with our own business. Well, I don't think there's any more questions rolling in. Um, perhaps you can just tell everyone how they can get hold of you. And then obviously we'll also put it in the comments um, at the bottom of this as well. And obviously you are in the group as well. So uh, if people want to message you within the group, that's fine, isn't it? Is that okay? Yes. I mean, you can tag me in the group. You can add me on Facebook, which is Megan Saint, or follow my page, which is Your HR Handled. Um, my website is yourhrhandled.com. And my email, I'm sure Bill will put on there, but it's Megan at yourhrhandled.com. Um, so if you have any questions about anything, then please feel free to just drop me a message and I'll be happy to help. I'm going to say this hopefully has been really, really helpful for everyone. And I think um, it's been really great chatting to you and we've hit some really sort of important topics around um, how HR can help your a small business, such as a pet groomers and uh, people with employees or looking to employ people. So thank you so much for your time and uh, having this chat with us. No problem. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and we'll see you soon. Yes, speak to you all soon. Bye-bye.